following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Lord God, we cry out in our sorrow. We cry to you who hears the prayer of the righteous. We cry out to you, the one who knows all things and who also hates violence and death. Lord, we are troubled, we're saddened, we're, we're hurt, and we hurt alongside of our fellow citizens who experience the cruel blow of death. Lord, so many families, Lord, who have, who have lost someone, someone that they love, someone that did not come home. Lord, this is a terrible tragedy. And we weep with those that weep this morning. And we acknowledge that this is not the way that it is supposed to be. And we don't like that. We hate it. This violence has left us wounded and scared and questioning and numb. And we can't help but wonder, God, have you forgotten to be gracious? But Lord, it would be foolish for us to take our present circumstances and make them the measure of who you are. You are the ancient of days. You have always existed from eternity past. You've never had a beginning and you will not have an end. And so it is better for us to trust the one who is over all of time and space forever. Who's over all the affairs of man. The one who is over all and rules all as the good and sovereign king. We find our rest in the Lord who has given us himself, King Jesus. There is encouragement and comfort in Christ. We declare in the midst of our weak faith that you are indeed the Lord the one in complete control, and the one who will do what is right and good. Lord, please strengthen our Christian brothers throughout our city who have been affected by this terrible event. May they find rest in the arms of Jesus, and may you increase their faith. Hold them fast, Father. They need your care and your consistent hand of guidance in these dark times. Lord, do not forsake your people. God, have mercy on our city. Please, Lord, would you give them hope in you? Would you make us, as your people, to be listening and humble servants of our unbelieving brothers and sisters that would come alongside to hear and to cry with them? We know that only you hold the keys to true comfort and true blessing. Would you help us to be patient and understanding and ready to cry with those who have lost so much? Lord, they need the God of the gospel, not the God of cheap sentimentalism. God, would you break stony hearts and make ways for hurting people to find true consolation. Bring hope to our city. Lord, we need you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Just as a quick announcement, tonight at six, from six o'clock till seven o'clock, we'll have the doors open on anyone that wants to come and pray together. We'll pray for one hour together. We're gonna pray for our city and several of those that are hurting within our own body as well. From six o'clock to seven o'clock, it's all we'll do. It's not a time to preach or not a time to do anything else but sit and weep and pray and cry out to the Lord together. So you're all welcome to do that. There's no pressure, this was kind of last minute, but tonight from six to seven, just to let you know. The reality of suffering struck us on Friday afternoon. 
And if you've been here for any time, the reality of pain and heartache pierced us on last Sunday afternoon. For some of you, it's happened when you were very young, when your father mistreated you and left you to pick up the pieces, you and your family. For some of you, suffering began the day that your son or daughter rejected God. For some of you, it was when you heard the news, my loved one has cancer and is going to die. For some of you, suffering seems to almost be a way of life. It has been said that to cry is to be human. It is part of the human experience. To go through suffering is to understand what it means to live. But simply acknowledging that fact doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't do anything with it. It just leads us all on the same plane. Our world handles suffering and grief in so many different ways. Some try to handle it by isolating themselves. Others by surrounding themselves with tons of people. Some bury themselves in excessive work and become workaholics, going, 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 to try to numb themselves. And others, the exact opposite, pull away further and further from all their responsibilities so that they might be aloof and numb their pain. Some turn to alcohol. Some turn to eating. Some turn to substance abuse and drugs just so that they can help them cope with the hurt that is inside their chest that they don't know what to do with. Some seal themselves off from everyone, sometimes physically, but just as much sometimes emotionally. I will not let anyone hurt me again. How is a Christian to respond to the realities of sin and sorrow? When it's facing us directly, what are we supposed to do? Is there a way for a Christian to grieve rightly the way that they're supposed to? It's certainly true that to cry is to be human, but there's a more important truth for the believer that we must grasp. A pastor that I was reading on the subject says this, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. We're not talking about some sort of raging lament that just empties itself out and vent. It's not what we're talking about. Today, I'd like for us to follow our brother Asaph in his hardship. He is going to serve us well by recording for us what is going on in his own heart in the midst of his struggle. He's going to write it right down for us. And you and I need the hope that Asaph gives to us. But perhaps just as important is the process by which we get there. That we would not be like the world who does not have a good and loving father. Psalm 77 helps us with this. Let me read it. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember the songs in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? 
Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and, and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. When we are faced with suffering and pain and agony on every side, what are we to do? I'll cut right to it. We are to lament. This is what Asaph does. Instead of walling himself up, instead of busying himself with several tasks, instead of raging with anger against his maker, all of that he laments. And what I mean by that is that he prays. He doesn't talk to his friends. He talks to God. He laments. He opens his mouth and cries out to God. I don't know when this happened for Asaph, what the specific instance was, but I can tell you this. He was in the thick of it. His heart was so heavy and dark. He didn't have any answers. His heart was aching and he needed the help of God. Look at verse one and two. He cries aloud to God. He cries in faith. I've said this before, but I am more convinced day after day that praying is possibly the most faith-filled activity that a Christian can do. Consider it. You don't know, you can't see who you're talking to. The world thinks it's absolutely ridiculous. It's incredibly difficult to talk to someone that you can't see or feel. Or in the times of deep, dark sorrow, you can hardly even believe. And yet he calls us here to do that, to trust and to pray. It's only this act, though, can only happen for the one who does trust that God does hear. Look what he says in verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. This is the prayer of faith. He does this and speaks to God because he knows he will hear him. He trusts that he is real. He doesn't look for other things to solve his problem. He looks to the Lord. Look at verse two. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. Asaph properly looks to God when his trouble comes, but he doesn't give up there. Look at the rest of verse two. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. This guy prays day and night. It's a flowery way of saying, I am persistent in praying. I'm coming to you, talking, begging you to hear my cry because I am hurting. If you look at the rest there, you'll see that. But if any of you have been like me, where you go along this way and you come to a certain point after crying out to God and you realize that you are looking at the wall in front of you and there's no one there, you're like, God, is this real? Am I sitting alone in this room and talking to the wall? Are you here at all? 
Am I the only one that ever get that, that plague of doubt on me and struggle? And I want to stop praying because I feel absolutely ridiculous. Or maybe it's not that way. Perhaps it's a little different. Perhaps it's like this. You don't see God react. And so your prayers need to stop. They're wearing you out. Why would you continue in this kind of a activity? Why would you perform more and more prayers? God isn't changing anything. I mean, let's face it. We want God to answer our prayers for help right now. I mean, it's bad. We need relief. If God really knows everything, if we're saying he's sovereign and control and omniscient, he knows what's going on in my own heart. And why won't you do anything? Here I stand and nothing's happening. And I wait. We want God to relieve us and nothing happens. We almost say to ourselves, my prayers aren't working. Asaph, though, he understood this. Look at what he says. Look how he describes it, the last part of verse two. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, guess what he does? I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. I mean, that doesn't sure doesn't sound like a good opportunity for the, what prayer really ends up bringing for you. Moaning, hurt, not being comforted, fainting. The experience of one's suffering. And oftentimes, we begin to pray, but we hit this wall and we want to stop. We don't see any results in our prayers. And so we want to stop. May I remind you, brothers and sisters, do not stop. For this God certainly does hear us. And he is willing and hearing. We want to be done. No answer. I'm out. This isn't even worth it. Brother, sister, do not stop. Continue in faith to lament before the Lord. Continue to pray. Asaph helps us out. He starts to describe his feelings and all that's going on here. He begins by explaining that he can hardly keep his eyes open, that his trouble is so bad that he can't speak. He begins to remember the good old days and tries to counsel himself with these joyous night songs, things that are supposed to make his heart sing and bring him back. But even his meditations leads him to difficulty. And instead of helping, we have these terrifying questions come out of his mouth. Look at verse four through nine. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my songs in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? How many of us have the same questions, but we're possibly too afraid to ask them out loud? Asaph was not. He starts off a little bit generic. Maybe God will reject or spurn us forever. Or perhaps he will stop being favorable, but you'll see he progresses on to get a lot more personal. When Asaph starts to ask questions concerning the covenant of Yahweh with what he's made with his people, it becomes a lot more serious. He asks if God's steadfast love, his covenant-keeping love, has stopped forever. Man, that is a crazy accusation that he would make, or at least a question. He asks if the covenant-keeping God will not fulfill his promises. Like, you said all this stuff was going to happen. Have you stopped with all of your fulfillment of promises? There are, there are wide, wild questions that he would ask. But in the midst of hardship and pain and suffering, when you and I can't see 
and we can't understand what's going on around us. And all we can do is say, is this still true? All I can feel is the opposite. How can it be true that you are still God and still good and still gracious and still going to fulfill all of your promises? I've talked to some of you here. And these last two questions are very real for you. You've asked the exact same ones. You've told me your story and you can see how in a world of good, <laughs> it seems to be good when things get peeled back, a good and loving God, how could he ever allow such evil to occur? What do we happen here in our own city? And in these times, we echo Asaph, God, did you forget to be gracious? Has your compassion stopped because you are so angry with us? These are not light questions. And they're hard hitting. And they go right to the character of God himself to ask him of these things. They're hard hitting. These questions about the character of God and his ability and willingness, both the ability and the willingness to act according to his immutable attributes. In other words, we're asking, are you really able? Are you really powerful enough to overcome these things? Another question, are you really willing to do it? Are you really good? Or are you just angry, pernicious God? Why, God? I don't understand. When I look around me, I cannot explain how you can still be good and allow this kind of stuff to happen. I understand. I believe, but Lord, man, help my unbelief because I'm struggling to put these pieces together. This is not an angry, sinful rage against God. This is rather a believing questioning of God because you know what the Bible says about his character. And it doesn't match with what you see in front of you or what you appears to be seen in front of you. This says, I'm looking at what I see. It doesn't make sense to me, at least not right now, but I still believe what you've revealed to me. I know these things to be true. My brother keeps telling my ear, God is good. Don't worry, brother. That's not how I feel. I feel beat down. I feel tired. I feel like I'm in vast amount of pain, and I feel like God's not here. It's hard. So, Lord, would you help me? These questions nag at him. They're difficult. And they can find, even almost feel embarrassing like that we don't hear someone say this out loud. Up to this point in the psalm, there's no hope. Up to this point in the psalm, all we have seems to be difficulty. We have faith, but we don't have any hope at this time yet. Asaph sits here in his grief in these questions, but does not stay there. Notice what happens here. We don't know how long the pause is between verse 9 and verse 10, but something happens. This could be days. This could be weeks. This could be months as you wrestle and question and hurt and cry out to God. But look what he does in verse 10. The process of grief is not a quick one, and each person must genuinely wrestle with the realities of suffering before God. For every believer, though, there must be a verse 10. There must be a time where we turn. I don't know how long that is, but there must be one. If there's no turn, there is no hope. In verse 10, Asaph decides something. He is going to counsel himself with the proper thoughts about who God is. He is going to forsake the foolishness of measuring God by his suffering and his experiences around what he can see, and instead, he will measure him by his ancient track record. The one who has been for all time Maybe I should instead measure up to that and figure out who he actually is. 
Listen to verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Asaph turns to remember what is true, the wondrous and mighty acts of the Lord. You'll hear it when I read it, but all of a sudden, Asaph's whole tune changes. Everything seems to pivot now. He begins to gush about the works of the Lord. In these two short verses, he talks about deeds, wonders, work, mighty deeds of this God. He then talks about the character of God and how he is unlike any other person in the world, that he is great and that he is holy. Let me read verse 11 through 13. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. And then, and then, I love this, he preaches the gospel to himself. Catch this, verse 14 and 15, listen. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. This is it. This is the defining act of God's salvation in the Old Covenant, the exodus from Egypt. Verse 15, you, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, God saved the children of Jacob and Joseph from the hands of their slave owners, from bondage. Before their liberation, what did they celebrate? Before they left, what was it? The Passover. What an event of redemption and God's precious work of taking that lamb, slaying it so that the blood could be shed and put on the door and so that the firstborn would not die. And through blood, there was rescue. They experience the mercy of God and watch this before their very eyes. They experience a meal. They act out this meal and they taste this meal that helps them to trust their God, reminding them of this great act of salvation. So the question is, why does Asaph go here? Why would he go straight here? I'll just cut to it though, because he knows the history. In Israel's history, Yahweh has shown himself faithful and true through the Exodus. In his steadfast love, he rescued his people from bondage. In his grace, he leads them out of Egypt to Sinai, where he gives them his law, which proclaims who he is. Talk about grace. He kept his promises to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses. He is not the God who abandons his people. He saves them. He rescues them. And there's a payment for it. Asaph goes here because it answers all the questions that he posed back in seven through nine. All those terrible, scary, different questions. Remember all of them? He sees God's character demonstrated for all his people to see at the Exodus. In this event, he's reminded that God will not spurn forever, that he will indeed be favorable to his children, that his steadfast love has not ceased, or nor will it ever cease. He goes here because it shows him that God will fulfill all of his promises, and that he has not forgotten to be gracious nor will he. And lastly here, he remembers that God's compassion is everlasting. All those questions are answered here in the event at the Exodus. Now, do you remember what happens right after the Exodus? As the people go out rejoicing, and they leave Egypt, and they go. Let me read from Exodus 14 for us. If you remember, these people had already gone through cruel slavery, hardship, and now as they leave Egypt, they find themselves with their back against the wall. 
or more literally, up against the Red Sea with no place to go. And in front of them, think about this, guys, in front of what they see, what's around them, is Pharaoh's army coming to kill them, to slaughter them. Exodus 14.10, this is their response. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The people who have just seen the great power of Yahweh to release them from Egyptian bondage now are trembling at the very real prospect that they will be destroyed by the Egyptians. But remember what God did. When the fears came, and they were about to be annihilated, Yahweh stepped in. Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. It's this beautiful picture. Now read with me, if you will, from the mouth of Asaph in Psalm 77, in light of this, okay? That's why we're going here. Verse 16 through 20. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way is through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And this is where Asaph leads us. Ecstatic about the great care and rescue of Yahweh grounding it and rooting it in history, knowing that he is true. <laughs> Safe in the arms of the one who redeemed Israel and kept his promises in the midst of difficulty and imminent destruction. What do we have? From pain to promise. What we see here is Asaph's lament leads us through the difficulty of when we can't understand or see what's going on around us. He shows us that we must start by crying out to God, the Holy One. Brother and sister, can I remind you, you need to cry out to God. It is not enough to have an accountability partner that you say, I'm struggling. You need to cry out to God. You need to lament. You need to talk to Him. It's not something that someone else can do for you alone. You must, you must reckon with your Creator. And you must cry out and lament. This is so important for us. Put yourself then at his mercy. Ask him your questions. Bring him your heart. Cry out to this God. Put yourself out there to him and remember the goodness of God and all of his wonderful works. Today, as we suffer and wrestle through what's happened in our own city, with our own questions, I want to call you to lament just as Asaph has taught us to. It's important that we would follow this as a way to treat our sorrows and struggles and pains and griefs. A believing prayer of lament to trust this God. But as the gathered church of Christ, I think that it's also very important that we take one of these things that he has given to us very seriously. Asaph says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. 
And then where does he take us? To this great act of redemption in Israel, right? Passover. He proclaims the, he proclaims the event that highlights the Passover, God's salvation for his people. Today, we will do the same thing, but in a more complete way. A way that shows where we are at in salvation history. We look back in wonder and thanksgiving at the Exodus. What a wonderful opportunity to see God's reconciliation, his redemption for his people. But a greater Exodus has occurred. A greater act of redemption has happened. Today, we will proclaim the Lord's death together around the communion table. And as we look back, we recognize the far greater act of real redemption for his people in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The lion of the tribe of Judah, but the lamb who was slain. The one who made it possible so that we might be redeemed to the Father. Men, if you could at this time please come forward to serve the bread and the cup. As they do, I want to remind you of a few things. At the cross, Jesus has rescued us, his church, from sin. And he promises to bring us to himself. And we will one day drink the cup with him in the Father's kingdom on that day. In this event that we share together, the Lord's Supper, communion, we look back at this event, the great wonders that he has done in Jesus. He's done for us on the cross. His body was broken and bruised. His blood was poured out to pay the price that was required to pay for our sin. He paid the ransom price to adopt us as sons and daughters. It's, it's unbelievable. But in the communion meal, we also not only look back, but we also look forward. There is something better to come than just this table. There's something more complete. There will be a time when he gathers his people for his own. We look forward then to the day that we will be perfect in Christ. There will be a feast with him and we will live with God as king and there will be no more suffering. And as Caleb said before, he will wipe away every tear because he is king alone.